0: We begin. Let's take a moment to relax. And once you've settled in, close your eyes. Reading Lolita in Tehran by Azar Nafisi. In the fall of 1995, after resigning from my last academic post, I decided to indulge myself and fulfill a dream. I chose seven of my best and most committed students and invited them to come to my home every Thursday morning to discuss literature. They were all women. To teach a mixed class in the privacy of my home was too risky. Even if we were discussing harmless works of fiction, one persistent male student although barred from our class, insisted on his rights. So he, Nema, read the assigned material, and on special days, he would come to my house to talk about the books we were reading. I often teasingly reminded my students of Muriel Sparks, the prime of Miss Jean Brody, and asked, which one of you will finally betray me? for I am a pessimist by nature, and I was sure at least one would turn against me. Nasrin once responded mischievously, You yourself told us that in the final analysis we are our own betrayers. repeating, do not, under any circumstances, belittle a work of fiction by trying to turn it into a carbon copy of real life. What we search for in fiction is not so much reality, but the epiphany of truth. Yet I suppose that if I were to go against my own recommendation and choose a work of fiction, that would most resonate with our lives in the Islamic Republic of Iran. It would not be the prime of Miss Jean Brody, or even 1984. But perhaps Navikov's invitation to a beheading, or better yet, Lolita. A couple of years after we had begun our Thursday morning seminars, on the last night I was in Tehran, A few friends and students came to say goodbye and to help me pack. When we had deprived the house of all of its items, when the objects had vanished and the colors had faded into eight gray suitcases, like errant genies evaporating into their bottles, my students and I stood against the bare white wall of the dining room and took two photographs. I have the two photographs in front of me now. In the first, there are seven women standing against a white wall. They are, according to the law of the land, certain daintiness about her, and we took to calling her my lady. As Rain used to say that more than defining Mashid, we had managed to add another dimension to the word lady. Mashid is very sensitive. She's like porcelain, Yasi once told me, easy to crack. That's why she appears fragile to those who don't know her too well. But woe to whoever offends her. As for me, Yossi continued good-naturedly. I'm like Often clashed with Masheed and Mana. We nicknamed her the Wild One. On my other side is Mitra, who was perhaps the calmest among us. Like the pastel colors of her paintings, she seemed to recede and fade into a paler register. Her beauty was saved from predictability by a pair of miraculous dimples, which she could and did use to manipulate many an unsuspecting victim depending to her will. Sanas say that Nazarin was Nazarin. For nearly two years, almost every Thursday morning, rain or shine, they came to my house, and almost every time I could not get over the shock of seeing them shed their mandatory veils and robes and burst into color. When my students came into that room, they took off more than their scarves and robes. Gradually, Each one gained an outline and a shape, becoming her sunny room in Tehran. But to steal the words from Humbert, the poet criminal shaking her head from side to side. She pauses before entering the room. Only there is no room, just the teasing void of memory. More than any other place in our home, the living room was symbolic of nomadic and borrowed life. Vagrant pieces of furniture from different times and places were thrown together, partly out of financial necessity, and partly because of my eclectic taste. Oddly, these incongruous ingredients created a symmetry that the other, more deliberately furnished rooms in the apartment lacked. My mother would go crazy each time she saw the paintings leaning against the wall, and the vases of flowers on the floor, and the curtainless windows, which I refused to trust until I was finally reminded that this was an Islamic country and windows needed to be dressed. I don't know if you really belong to me, she would lament. Didn't I raise you to be orderly and organized? Her tone was serious, but she had... paid much attention to at the time, has gained a different status in my mind's eye, now that it has become the precious object of memory. It was a spacious room, sparsely furnished and decorated. At one corner was the fireplace, a fanciful creation of my husband Bichon. There was a love-seat against one wall, over which I had thrown a lace-cover, my mother's gift from long ago. A pale peach couch faced the window, accompanied by two matching chairs. from where I sat, but opposite my chair on the far wall of the dining-room was an antique oval mirror, a gift from my father, and in its reflection I could see the mountains capped with snow even in the summer, and watch the trees change colour. That censored view intensified my impression that the noise came not from the street below, but from some far-off place a place whose persistent hum was our only link to the world we refused for those few hours to acknowledge.